Well, good morning. I want to welcome everybody here. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are glad that you're here. You are our honored guest. Hope you have time to stick around for that wonderful meal that has been prepared uh, for us afterwards. Um, I will uh, try to keep it short so you can have it while it's warm. And uh, we'll get started this morning. Listen, I'm really excited about this new series that we're going to be starting on Sunday mornings over the, the next few weeks. Um, we are starting a brand new series that I'm calling Catching Fire. The promise is still for you. And I'm excited about this sermon series because, in all honesty, this series has been growing in me for uh, the better part of 15 years. Um, I had my first real encounter with the Holy Spirit in 2009, and it was an experience that changed my life literally forever. And I'll be honest with you, learning about the Holy Spirit over the years has been kind of hard. Um, because for a couple of reasons, one of which is um, that we don't talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in our churches. I remember as I was growing up, I became a Christian at the age of 14. And um, all those years that I was going to church before I, I, I got into youth ministry and then later on got into pulpit ministry, I never once ever heard a sermon about the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I both know that the Holy Spirit is part of what we call the, the Trinity, right? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Father we've talked about all the time. The Son we talked about all the time. But I never heard a sermon ever about this being, this divine being that's a part of this divine community that lives in heaven known as the Holy Spirit. In fact, for the first uh, many years of my Christian life, I called the Holy Spirit an it as opposed to a him. And, and sometimes you'll have casual conversations with people and you'll hear them talking about the Holy Spirit and they will refer to him as an it, like it's a, a, a force, if you will. Um, and so over the, the last 15 years, I've had to do a lot of learning. I've had to do a lot of trial and error, a lot of studying, a lot of um, uh, getting to know uh, the Holy Spirit through experience as God has given new experiences with him. Uh, God has placed different mentors in my life who has helped me to understand a little bit more about the Spirit. Another reason why learning about the Holy Spirit has been hard over the years is because in our tradition, in uh, churches of Christ, we generally have an unofficial doctrine when it comes to the Holy Spirit, an unofficial stance. It's not posted anywhere. We don't officially have a creed in the churches of Christ, but there are certain things that we tend to believe and certain things that we don't tend to believe. And one of the things that we tend to believe about the Holy Spirit is usually one of two things. Either, and this is one that you will see in a lot of our more conservative churches, is that the Bible itself is the Holy Spirit. How many of you have heard that growing up? The Bible itself is the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you want to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, you need to have a relationship with the Word. If you want more Holy Spirit in your life, you need to read the Word. If you want uh, more of the Spirit's active presence in your life, you need to memorize more of the Bible. There's no active presence of God living inside of you. That is one predominant theme in our more conservative churches of Christ. Now, there is another view, and this is the view that I grew up with, and it's not quite as strict as that view, and that's that the Holy Spirit is a presence that comes to live inside of you at the moment of baptism 
when you're baptized into Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, according to the Scriptures, seals your salvation until the return of Christ, until the time of the end, right? So there is a real active presence living inside of you that is the Holy Spirit, but with one caveat. He doesn't do anything. He don't do anything. There, in, in terms of his active presence, giving you, uh, uh, you know, miracles, things like that, healings, people raising from the dead, all that stuff that's talked about that you and I would think of as miraculous or outside of the ordinary, those things ended in the first century. Now, here's the reasoning why. The reasoning is because uh, what were miracles for? Well, this is the idea that we go with. We'll say that uh, miracles and gifts and those type of things, those were given in the first century because uh, the Apostle Paul and the early writers were writing the Scriptures. They were completing the Scriptures. And so they were to confirm the Word of God, to confirm that they were true. But once the Bible was written, once the final chapter of the Bible was written, now we had the perfect complete Word of God, and we have now no need whatsoever for the active presence of the Holy Spirit. This view is called cessationism. Cessationism is what I taught for years. It was what I had learned. It's what I taught. I remember uh, from the pulpit, I remember many sermons that I taught. I remember hearing stories, especially from the more uh, charismatic churches in the area. And, and of course, what did we do in Churches of Christ? We always made fun of them, didn't we? You know, those were the holy rollers. That was last Sunday, by the way. Some of you will get that in a minute. The holy rolling around the church. Uh, but we would make fun of them, right? We would hear stories about speaking in tongues, and we'd kind of jibber-jabber on the side and just mock them, make fun of them a little bit. Um, you know, we would you know, people, hear people talk about hearing voices, and we'd say, woo you know, they're going a little crazy or whatnot. Um, but we typically don't believe in our churches in the active presence of God's Holy Spirit. It's called cessationism, and it's the belief that those things cease. They are no longer here. Now, I don't hold to that view anymore. And over the course of the next few weeks, I'm going to share with you different reasons why. But I want to give you a caveat as we begin this conversation. I realize that as we talk about these things, there are going to be things that you have never heard before, most likely. There are things that you're going to hear that might challenge some of the things that you have held to be true for many, many years. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to agree with me on anything. But what I am asking you to do is the same thing that we talked about in our Bible class, is to go to the Word of God yourself and to see whether or not these things are true for you. Okay, um, I personally believe that the Holy Spirit is the missing ingredient in American churches, most American churches. And there is a difference between some of the emotional um, extremes that we have seen in some congregations, and there is that, just like there are extremes in our congregations, in other areas. Um, but honestly, if you want my opinion, I think that theologically speaking in our churches, we've, we've done a huge disservice to ourselves. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and we have missed the beauty of what God intended for us when he said he came to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I want to introduce this series by saying over the next few weeks, I want to walk with you through the pages of the Bible. I want us to look at what the Bible has to say about these things. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? What's he like? 
What are, what are his interests? What does he do? What does he like to do? What does he not like? How does he work in people's lives? Um, who is he really? What does, uh, what's his role? And we're going to be asking the question, what is his role today? Does the Holy Spirit have a role to play in our lives? And I, what I want us to do as we go through this series is I, I want us to have balance. I want us to have balance. Um, I've heard it said before that if you, if you focus on all spirit and you don't have any focus on the word, then the problem you run into is you can veer off into emotionalism. And that's true. But at the same time, the flip side is true. If you focus only on the word and you're never open to the Holy Spirit, then the same danger can take place and you can veer off into legalism. You have to have both. What I've learned over the years is that the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit himself, where it says in the New Testament that every scripture, every word that comes from the mouth of God is inspired, it is God-breathed. But here's the benefit that you and I have in Christ. When we become Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. The author of this word comes and lives inside of us. Don't you think that he's very eager for you to learn this word and to live by this word? Well, guess what? That's why he's there. Now, I want to begin this conversation this morning. I'm going to frame this a little differently. I'm going to take us to a story that you and I are very familiar with. And it's the story that takes place in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world, what, how does this story have to do with a series on the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you something a little bit funny. I was asking myself that question because several weeks ago, God gave me the outline for this entire series. And last Sunday night at CR, I was standing next to Tim. I had my hands up. I was worshiping the Lord. And it was like the Lord said, I want you to start with this story next Sunday. And I said, Lord, that, that doesn't make any sense to me because that's not the story I want to start with. And so I was wrestling with the text myself this week about some things that I had misunderstood in this text. So here's what I want to share with you this morning. God is at work all the time, even on this old preacher up here, man. Last Sunday night, as I was praying and worshiping next to Tim, God gave me something that I had never seen before in the story of the Samaritan woman. And now I realize why the Spirit wants to start here as we talk about him. So let's read the beginning part of this story. It's John chapter 4. I've got it up on the screen. If you've got your Bibles and you want to read together with me, let's read it together. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, or who, who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea, and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and the Bible gives you the little detail and says that it was about noon. Keep reading with me, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John puts a very parenthetical statement in there just to give you, the reader, an understanding. He says, The Jews do not associate with 
the Samaritans. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about here, this is a map of Israel uh, around the first time, of, excuse me, around the first century. And if you'll notice, uh, down below you have Judea. Up above you have Samaria. That was the, the northern part of Israel. That's where the Samaritans live. Israel keeps on going up in the area of Galilee, but that area of Samaria was landlocked or locked on the one side from the Jordan River and the Mediterranean coast on the other. They hated each other. Those people would not spend any time with each other. They would not associate with, with each other. And what would happen is, just because they would avoid each other at all costs, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem and you wanted to go up north to the Sea of Galilee or if you wanted to go visit you know, Magdala or Capernaum or Bethsaida or Cana or Nazareth or somewhere like that, then you would have two options. You could take a three days journey through Samaria and get there pretty fast. But they didn't want to do that because they couldn't stand each other. So here's what they would do. They would go up to Jericho, they would cross over the Jordan River, and they would literally travel an extra three days journey on the western side of the Jordan River all the way up to Galilee and then cross back over just so they could avoid a Samaritan. Isn't that amazing? Six days journey just to make sure that they would not run into a Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why they didn't like each other because I think a lot of you know we've, that's been talked about many times in sermons, but let me give you kind of a, a synopsis. The divisions between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom go all the way back to the time of Jeroboam when the kingdom first split in two. There's divisions that go all the way back hundreds of years, almost a thousand years earlier, eight, 800 or so years earlier. So there was already a civil war that had left a lot of bad feelings between those two groups. Those two groups of people saw themselves as individual entities. Then a few hundred years later, uh, the northern tribes became a mixed multitude. What had happened? God sent Assyria to judge the northern empire. Remember that? Because they had sinned against God. God allowed the Assyrians to come in and destroy the whole northern uh, nation of, of, uh, of Israel. And so he takes them captive. What happens? This is what the Assyrians would do. They would take the people, they would take the majority out of their native homeland, they would scatter them to other places. The northern nation of Israel was scattered to the four winds, literally scattered to the four winds. They integrated with all the peoples around them. And then what they would do is they would take other conquered people and they would bring them in and they would settle them into the land. So by um, after 722 B.C., here's what happened. The remnant leftovers of the people that lived in the land started intermarrying and having children with the Gentiles that had been brought in. Does that make sense? So after 722, it became a mixed people. Their identity was no longer like the Jews anymore. They were a mixed group of people. Well, guess how the Jews felt about that? They hated it. They said, You're, you guys are not pure anymore. You've, done, you've gone against God. You've intermarried with Gentiles. Now you're unclean. In fact, not only did they consider all the Samaritans unclean, they considered the whole northern territory of Samaria completely unclean. After 586, after the Jews had been taken to Babylon in captivity for 70 years, they came back, and if you remember, under, under the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they wanted to rebuild the temple. So they get the authority to do that. And the Bible tells us that the Samaritans came along and they wanted to help them rebuild the temple. What did the Jews do? They said, no way, no way. And that caused even more problems because they wanted to help them rebuild the temple. The Jews says, you're not going to come anywhere near the temple. And then finally, in 126 B.C., just 100 or so years before this story that you read about in the Bible, the, uh, the historian Josephus tells us that the Jews... Um, 
launched an attack on the north. They destroyed the capital city of Shechem, and they destroyed the Samaritan's temple. Now, you might be asking the question, well, why in the world did the Samaritans have their own temple? Well, because they weren't welcome in Jerusalem anymore. (laughs) That was one of the reasons. Another reason why the Samaritans had their own temple is because um, they only accepted the first five books of Moses. They did not accept the writings, and they did not accept the prophets. Why? Because both the writings and the prophets um, supported the line of David, right? The, The right of King David to sit on the throne for the whole nation. They didn't believe that anymore. So they only accepted the first five books of Moses, and in the first five books of Moses, where was the only place you could have had a temple? On Mount Gerizim, right? Because when they brought the children of Israel into the land, Moses had them uh, half go on Mount Gerizim, half went to Mount Ebal, and uh, on Mount Gerizim is where they pronounced the curse, or excuse me, where they pronounced the blessings. So they build their temple on top of that mountain, Okay, was it right or wrong? It was wrong. Biblically speaking, they weren't supposed to have a temple up there, but because of the circumstances and the history, that's kind of how it all how it all shook out. Okay, so needless to say, then the Samaritans in the north felt like the Jews in the south had committed apostasy and they were no longer God's people. And the Jews in the south looked at the people in the north and they thought those people have committed apostasy and they're no longer God's people. (laughs) So they hated each other. I mean, they literally hated each other. There was a component that was racial, but it was also religious. And they were historical enemies. So with all of this as your background then, it makes sense why in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, That's a lot of background. But I build that up to ask this one question. If that's the case, well then why is Jesus going out of his way to go up north to spend time with the Samaritans? Why is Jesus going up north to spend time with this particular woman? I got a little clip I want to show you. Anybody uh, seen the show The Chosen? And I really like that show. And I was watching, I think it was the first season, toward the end of the first season, I think it was. And there's this scene where they record this scene uh, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I think it's done really, really well. So I'm going to show you this scene here just for a moment. And, and I want you to read along in your Bible if you want to. The dialogue is pretty close. But I want you to ask this question as you're listening to this clip, as you're watching this clip, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he there, and why is he talking to her? And I didn't mention this earlier, but I do want to slide this in really quick, because not only is Jesus talking to a Samaritan, which the Jews didn't do, but he's also talking to a woman. And ladies, that ought to be significant to you, because in the first century, men and women in public did not converse. They did not talk, especially if you were a religious Jew, And especially if you were a rabbi, you just don't do that. Those are social taboos in the first century that you don't break. And Jesus is breaking them all. And the question you need to be asking yourself this morning as we watch this, as we go through the text is, why? The answer might be a little bit more shocking than you realize.
give me a drink? Can we turn it up louder, Alan? A little louder. Bad, huh? What? You, would you ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? And a woman? I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Wood. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it. In spirit and truth. Heart and mind. That, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done.
you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. Once you know these things, because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> hey, wait! Your water! You forgot your um. Rabbi, we got food. What would you like? Ah, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you food? Such a wonderful series. Um, I love that last part. Did somebody bring you food? Jesus says in, in verse 34, to continue that, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. And up until that point, the Jews that were following Jesus, they thought that the only harvest that God was interested in was the harvest of the Jewish people down in Judah. 
And, and it's hard for us, it's hard for me and you to, to really grasp that and identify with that because you and I think of the harvest field as being everywhere, but that's not what they understood at that moment. They were having to be stretched a little bit and Jesus was showing them that they were going to have to start thinking outside the box a little bit about where the harvest fields are. Um, I absolutely love how the story ends. The text goes on to say in uh, verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. <laughs> so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, I admit, I, I'm a little bit ashamed of how I used to understand this text, how I used to teach this text, because, um, you know, I used to see it as Jesus telling this woman, uh, look, there's a day coming when you're not going to worship here, you're not going to worship in Jerusalem, it's not going to matter anymore about temples and mountains, it's, it's not going to matter, the day is coming when you're going to, to worship in spirit and in truth, and as a young Church of Christ preacher, let me tell you how I understood that and how I preached that, how I preached that was this, you have to worship him in spirit, meaning you've got to have the right attitude when you come to your worship service. You've got to have the right spirit, the right mindset, the right heart. And secondly, you have to worship in truth. There's only one authorized way to worship God, and that's with the five acts of worship. And you have to do it the right way. And by definition, that meant the church of Christ way. That's how I taught that passage for well over nine, ten years. And I'm so ashamed that I did that because I missed completely like the woman here was missing completely when he says, I've got water you don't know about. She says, where's your bucket? Sometimes when God confronts us with truth, it has to work through different layers of things in our hearts before it finally gets there. And I didn't realize that until later when I was reading this story in context, what Jesus was actually saying. When Jesus sits down with the Samaritan woman, he asks her for a drink. She responds and says, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? And then listen to what Jesus says to her next. It's the most pivotal statement in the entire story. And when you understand what Jesus is about to say, the whole rest of the conversation begins to make a lot more sense. Look at what he says to her in verse 10. I have it up on the screen here behind me. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There are two things that Jesus wants to the Samaritan woman to know. What are they? Somebody say it. He wants them to know the gift of God. It's in the passage right here. If you knew the gift of God and number two, what? Who it is who asked you. Okay? Those are the two things that he's wanting this woman to know. What is the gift of God? I want you to have the gift of God and you need to know what my identity is. The rest of the whole conversation revolves around those two points. And once you see that, it makes a whole lot more sense. So let's talk about the two things that he reveals. Number one, he reveals his identity to her how does he reveal his identity to her he's going to reveal to her that he's the son of god that he's the messiah that he's the one that's been prophesied about a long time ago how does he do it he does it 
by sharing very personal things about her life that she talked to no one about. That's a miraculous word from the Lord. You people talk about hearing a word from the Lord. That is a word from the Lord. In other words, just like he did with Nathaniel when he saw Nathaniel sitting under the tree and he went to him later on, he says, I saw you, you were sitting under the tree. And he's like, how in the world could you have possibly known that? That impressed him enough to become a follower of Jesus. Well, guess what? This woman has been married five times. The guy that she's living with is, is not her husband. How do you think this woman felt about those things? I mean, we know that part of the story. And every single time I've heard a sermon preached on this story, that's what we tend to focus on. We focus on the sinfulness of the woman. Well, let's just get that out of the way. Yep, she's done a lot of bad stuff, right? Or she may not have. You know, we tend to think that this woman is like sexually promiscuous or something. Well, we don't know that. Maybe it was like they presented in the story. Maybe the man was abusive to her. Well, guess what? If a man's abusive to a woman and kicks her out, she's got nowhere to go. That's why Jesus says if you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. Why? Because you're forcing that woman into an impossible situation. So if you kick a woman out of the house, she's only got two options. She either goes and lives with a family member or she goes and be a prostitute. You can't go get a job and get a condo. So what they would do is they would go to the next man they would take her. But guess what? By the time you go to the next man, you're damaged goods. Well, she's been through this five times. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but I would guess that by the time she goes to the sick, she doesn't even marry the guy anymore because what's the point? I don't know. I'm just guessing here at this point. But that's not the focus of the story. Did you notice what the woman says to Jesus right after he reads her heart and her life like a book? Like an open book, did you notice what the woman says to Jesus in verse 25? The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. See, the Samaritans, like the Jews, if they were people of faith, they believed that the Messiah was going to come one day. That was a shared belief that the Samaritans and the Jews had. But, but people who don't have faith don't believe those things, do they? People who don't have any faith or don't care are not looking for the coming of the Messiah. They're living their lives the way that they want to live, just like the people today are not looking for the coming of the Messiah. But people who have faith are. So what am I trying to say about the woman who was at the well? She was broken, but she had faith. She was broken, but she was looking for the Messiah. She knew she was full of problems, but she was looking for the day when that one would come and help resolve them. And so on that day, Jesus paid a very special visit to this lady, went out of his way to reveal not only who he was, that he was the Messiah, but also so that he could reveal to her something called the gift. I didn't realize on a Sunday night why the Spirit wanted me to do this passage because I had missed this my entire time, or my entire life, rather. Jesus wants to give you a gift. Now, who doesn't like receiving gifts? You know what's funny? I used to hate receiving gifts. I really did. I used to drive my wife crazy. She said, I'd give you a surprise. It would drive me insane not knowing what it was, and I'd give her a hard time until she told me. I don't know why I was like that. I was a weird person or whatever. But we all love getting gifts, right? Somebody gives you a gift that makes you feel good on the inside. But this is a missing ingredient that we have in our churches is that part of what it means to be a Christian, 
part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if we understood the Scriptures, if we understood the plan of God, if we understood where the history of humanity is going and the final redemption of mankind, then you would understand how important this gift is. That this gift has been prophesied for hundreds and even thousands of years prior. That this gift was what was looked forward to at the coming of the Messiah. And now that the Messiah is here, He has come to bring this gift to His followers. And it's those people who receive Him that receive the gift. Jesus says that the gift of God is like living water. Verse 14, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if you were just reading the Gospel of John and you, uh, you read those words, that whoever drinks the water I give, uh, it'll, it'll become in them a spring of water. Um, you still would not know what Jesus means by living water just by reading John chapter 4. You have no idea what living water means in that context. But if you keep reading the Gospel of John, he tells you later on. In John chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem around that time. There's many people that were starting to wonder if Jesus was the Messiah. And in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, Jesus cries out to the crowd around him. And he says these words, look up on the screen behind me. If anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, did you catch, did you catch it? Let me say it again, because we, sometimes we go so fast we can miss it. Whoever believes in me, he says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. Again, Jesus connects knowing his identity with receiving living water. But what does that mean? Well, John helps us understand in the very next verse. Look at verse 39. Now this, he said, about what? The Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the gift is going to be given at what point? It's not given now. He's talking about the gift. He's showing people who he really is. He brought this woman to a point of, of faith in who his identity was. But this gift is going to be given after his death and after his resurrection, right? We're going to talk about that in just a quick moment. So uh, what does it mean then to worship in spirit and in truth? I hope that by now it's obvious what that means. To worship in spirit means to worship in the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. See, this is a non-negotiable as Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, it's a non-negotiable. You also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? The two go hand in hand. So this is not a question of whether or not some have the Spirit and some don't. If you're a follower of Christ, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit right now. This sermon series is built and written to help you understand the gift and what the gift is like, and how to use the gift of the Spirit that lives inside of you. So the Spirit in whom we worship is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us when we believe the truth about who Jesus is. Spirit, truth. Spirit, truth. Do you see it now? 
That's exactly what Jesus is talking to the woman about there. Once you come to the truth and understanding of who he was, you will receive the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to find, the more we get into this subject over the next few weeks, is that this idea of a gift of God runs from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. We are going to find that receiving the Holy Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit, being obedient to the Holy Spirit is central to what it means to be a follower and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, like living water, the Spirit was poured out on all of Jesus' apostles and all those people who had gathered in that upper room. You can see the book of Acts chapter 2 if you want to follow up on that story. But Peter stood up on that day and he said to all the people that were listening after he had just preached a sermon about Jesus. And when you get down to the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 36, 37, right around that, that time, it says that they were pricked in their hearts. In other words, they preached about Jesus and collectively speaking, thousands of people came to have faith. They realized, oh my goodness, we just killed the Messiah. Jesus really was the one. They came to understand the truth. What did the Bible says happens when you accept the truth of Jesus' identity? What happens? You receive what? The gift. And so here's what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says it right here. Peter replied, every single one of you, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Soon after the birth of the church, what did they do? They started spreading truth everywhere, didn't they? Everywhere they went. The book of Acts is a chronicle of this. It starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, then it goes up to Samaria, and then it goes to the other parts of the earth. In fact, by the time you get to the very end of the book of Acts, you see Paul in the capital city of Rome spreading the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And now today, just as Jesus said what happened, the Father has a multitude of worshipers, and guess what? We don't worship on any mountain, do we? We don't worship in Jerusalem. We don't worship on Mount Gerizim. The worshipers that Jesus has for himself today, who have accepted the truth of who he is, they worship in full uh, experience of the Holy Spirit. They worship by that Spirit that lives inside of them. So I want to suggest to you this morning that, and this is the premise of this whole entire series, is that the Holy Spirit is still the gift of God. He's still the gift of God. And what it says in the book of Acts 2.38, he says the promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Well, guess what? That meant for everybody in that generation, and that also means for everybody in this generation too. The gift is that seal of our salvation. That is the very presence of God living within us. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this gift is still available. And I pray that over the next few weeks, we're all going to get to know a little bit more about this incredible person known as the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop right here with a, just a really quick story. And I want to just share a, a personal story from my life. And I thought this was really, really interesting. This was before, um, this was before he showed me these things in this passage, okay? I was at a church I was serving and I was starting to have um, just experiences with God that I could not explain. And one of the things that I've learned about the Holy Spirit is if you, if you learn to listen to His voice and if you learn to, 
um, just walk in the flow of whatever he's doing in your life, oftentimes he will give you a heads up on things that are about to happen just to kind of prepare yourself and to prepare your heart. So I was serving as the, the, the minister at this congregation, and there was a youth minister. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but this youth minister was really, really struggling. Um, he didn't know if, if he was going to continue anymore. He was just having a hard time in, in his ministry. And um, one night, I go to sleep and I have a dream. And in the dream, I want to tell you what happens in the dream. So in the dream, I see the youth minister, and he's about to play tug of war with the youth group. And so the youth group is over here, and they all have the rope, and the youth minister is over here, and he has the rope. And there's this girl there, and I noticed that over to the side, there's a table standing there, and there's a big, um, a, a big uh, it was a, a package, it was a, a present that was wrapped, in, it was wrapped in purple, or blue rather, and it had the words Holy Spirit written on it. It was a gift, a box. And whoever wins the, the tug of war gets to have the gift, right? Gets to have the prize. And so here's what happens in the dream. So in the dream, he comes over to me and he says, listen, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Will you do it for me? And so he takes off his shoes and he hands me his shoes. And in the dream, I'm supposed to put the shoes on, stand in his place, get ready and start pulling and doing tug of war with the youth group. And when I woke up, I realized what was happening. God had shown me in the dream that the youth minister was about to quit. He was about to hand over the tug of war with the kids. I was going to fill those shoes. Are you watching it? Are you hearing it? I was going to fill those shoes and to be ready because it was going to be like pulling tug of war with the teens. Well, guess what? A week later, he comes to me. He says, listen, I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time. And then uh, within a few weeks, he quit. And guess who they put in charge of the teens again? I was wearing the shoes. But the Holy Spirit gave me a little teeny heads up to show me to get ready for what was about to happen. And by the way, I wound up sharing that with the youth minister. And yeah, that's like I said, I was, uh, yeah, it didn't go well. <laughs> he didn't believe that. He thought that was strange or whatnot. But I'm telling you, the gift of God has been given to you who walk in the Holy Spirit. And just like Jesus was able to read that woman's heart like a book, he reads your heart too. And if you will listen to the Holy Spirit, he will walk you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and he will begin to speak to you in ways that you cannot miss. And I promise you, every single one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do in your life will be to bring you closer to Jesus, help you to get rid of sin in your life, help you to embrace the holy life that he wants you to live if we're willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. Would you please bow with me and pray? Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. I pray, Father, that you have been able to use this broken vessel to be able to say some things this morning that perhaps has been encouraging, and I pray so. I pray that you would be with us throughout the rest of this day. Thank you for the food that we're about to eat. I pray, Father, that you would open up the hearts of those who are going to contribute so that we can raise money for the kids to go to camp. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us, bless our families, bless the ones that are not here, Father, for whatever reason. Be with us until we come together again, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to respond to the invitation, um, if you uh, feel called to lead in prayer, if you would stand up, make your way to the outer edges. If you feel the need to have prayer, then come forward, either see one of the people around here or you can come up here and pray with me. Um, but do so, please, right now as we stand and sing.